Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Great, thanks, Dave. Uh, it's so good um, that we get to do things like this. I was just uh, speaking at a conference with uh, uh, David Devonish, who leads our sort of family of churches. He spoke at Love Nations just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when he introduced me to come and speak, he, uh, he said it's such a sweet thing. He said, uh, uh, Matt Lee's Mosaic Church, and Mosaic is the most intentional church I've ever come across at sending people to the nations. And now we know the reality is we're not that good on the ground, but um, I, I took that as just high praise for what God's done by his grace amongst us with a heart for the nations and a desire in us to send people uh, far and wide to uh, share the good news of Jesus. So very proud of these guys as they go. If you've got a Bible, could you open it up? Um, uh, if you've got it on your phone, feel free to get those out. Uh, Jack Flowers is doing uh, our FB internship. is going to come and read Matthew 20, verses 17 to 28. Um, Jack's working really hard down at South. He also serves at High Park Henley, so you don't see him much. Why don't we give him a little round of applause? Say thank you to him. Thank you, Matt. Great, so you should be, should be able to follow along on the screen behind. Uh, so from verse 17. So now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked her favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand, and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my or left is not for me to grant. These places belong for those uh, for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, "You know what the rulers of the Gentiles, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve." and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the Bible. Thank you. It's through the Bible you reveal yourself to us. And uh, we ask that um, you give me grace now as I share from this passage to communicate all that you want to say to us um, in your name. Amen. Um, I don't know uh, how much you guys know about the quest for the Holy Grail, uh, but the grail is the cup that, uh, according to legend, was used by Joseph of uh, Arimathea to catch Jesus' blood that drained from his body when he was on the cross. Um, you might have heard of uh, sort of stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and uh, they supposedly believed that the grail had made its way, of all places, to, uh, to England, and somehow it became lost and the knights were determined to find and locate uh, the grail and the quest became something or a great act of devotion and loyalty and courage. 
I'm not a, a big King Arthur fan, but I am a massive fan of Indiana Jones. And uh, some of you might have seen this film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. How many of you have seen this film? Like, yeah, 95% of you. Um, it goes without saying, but Indiana Jones, archaeologist with uh, a bit of a taste for adventure. And in this film, Indy's father, who's played by Sean Connery, he gets uh, uh, kidnapped after discovering some clues as to the Grail's whereabouts. And the evil Nazis sort of take him and uh, they actually shoot him. Uh, Indy, at the end of the film, manages sort of through lots of adventures to catch up and find his father who's dying from this gunshot wound. But he's is t- told the only way he can save his father is by running this gauntlet of booby traps that uh, lead to the grail and he must get it uh, to save his father. So he uses the information from his father's diary and he uh, tries to uh, overcome the traps that have been set. He actually takes sort of two baddies with him, uh, someone called Donovan, someone called Elsa. And do you guys remember that scene right at the end of the film where he's got to get through? Do you remember the first booby trap? It's like circular blades, and he's got to bow before it somehow to avoid his head being chopped off. And then he's got like this word puzzle where he's got to spell out the Hebrew name for for God, Jehovah, uh, without using the vowels on the floor. And then he gets to the final bit. Uh, I think we've got a picture of it. I love this scene where, do you remember, uh, from his perspective, this bridge does not exist. So it's sort of camouflaged against the background. You can only see it as you move like this to one side. And he has to take that huge sort of step of faith uh, to cross the bridge and then to get to this place where uh, it's a chamber that's guarded by a knight. And this knight has been kept alive for 700 years by the power of the grail, uh, which is hidden among uh, dozens and dozens of fake grails. And the knight explains that they must choose the grail they think is the real one, but warns that if they choose wisely, uh, then the real grail will bring life, but if they choose badly, the fake grail will take life away. And in the film, Elsa betrays Donovan and deliberately sort of gives him this golden chalice that quite clearly would never have belonged to Jesus. And that causes him to decay into dust upon drinking from it. And then Indiana uses his expert knowledge to find the true grail, which is the plain cup of Jesus, a humble carpenter. And he quickly fills the cup with holy water, takes it to Henry, his father, which he gives him a drink, and then he pours it on his gunshot wound, instantly healing him, and Indy saves the day. Yay! We'll actually come back to the story, but the idea behind this quest for the cup or the Holy Grail actually comes all the way back to passages like the one we just read here in Matthew 20. It's in this passage we find Jesus contemplating the cup he will need to drink in order to save mankind and uses it to teach us uh, or teach his disciples about true greatness. And so the heart of the message is the royalty of service found in verse 26. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And so what we're going to do with our time is just work our way through this passage together. So firstly, Jesus needs to practice what he preaches 
And he applies this servant-hearted principle first to himself. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So right there is the expression of greatness that Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples about, the service of others, endurance of hardship, opposition, and even agonizing death. And the idea is that God will vindicate this attitude. So he finishes by saying on the third day he will be raised to life. So there's a pattern here that Jesus wants us and his disciples to see. So you have Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, a high in a high place, choosing to, through the incarnation, to come to earth, holding on to his divinity but laying aside his glory and becoming a man, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And it's through the incarnation and then his death on the cross, he becomes low. So the Son of God high, the incarnation and his death low, and then resurrection and ascension. He's truly great. He's placed in a high place. And he's going to ask his followers to follow that same pattern. This is an unbelievably difficult time for Jesus. In Mark's version of the same story, Jesus is actually walking on ahead. The disciples were amazed and afraid as they sensed the turmoil that's going on in Jesus' heart. Jesus now knew clearly what awaited him when he would be arrested. And Good Friday, 2000, Good Friday is obviously just coming now, this week. But the Good Friday 2,000 years ago, Jesus knew that he would be stripped, he would be tied to a whipping post and initially beaten with a whip. Uh, and in those days, these whips weren't just sort of a, a sort of a leather Indiana Jones sort of whip. But rather at the end of the whip were bits of metal and bits of bone. And the whole point was to do as much damage as, to someone as possible. So you'd whip their back. And these bits of bone and metal would stick in the flesh and then they would rip them out. And then they would flip the person over and do their front. And many people would actually die just from the flogging because so much, uh, they would lose so much blood and lungs and bones and ribs would be exposed. He would then knew that he'd be dragged to the praetorium where a crown of thorns would be placed on his head and something like up to 600 men would have been involved. Uh, they would all have been located at the praetorium and uh, we're told that he was hit about the head and faced and told to prophesy as to who hit him. And that punishment continued up until he was forced to carry a heavy crossbeam. And in those days, you wouldn't have carried sort of the whole of the cross. It would have actually been impossible to carry. And so they made prisoners walk from the Praetorium up to Golgotha where they crucified their prisoners. Just they would have asked them to carry the crossbeam itself. This in, in itself would be extremely heavy. And when placed on sort of the lacerated torso would be incredibly painful. And Jesus couldn't actually carry his part of the cross. And Simon of Cyrene was press ganged into carrying, carrying it for him. When he reached the site of the crucifixion, he would again have been stripped naked and they would have laid him down on the cross. 
And so the crossbeam that he was carrying, they would have laid him down on it um, and taken six-inch nails and nailed his arms. And you wouldn't, uh, historically, I think lots of people think that you would have been nailed through the palms, but that the hands are too weak to hold the weight of the body. And so the nails would have sort of gone through the wrist. And then they would turn, so as in that position, the whole lower half of the body would have then been turned to one side, so feet pointing that way. And again, another spike driven through both legs, just above the ankle, into the cross. And so he's laying down, nails driven in, and then they would lift the cross into position. And if you can imagine, the cross would rise up and then suddenly jolt down into the hole in order to remain upright. It was there that he knew that he would hang in intense heat with unbearable thirst, exposed to the ridicule of the crowd. And there on Good Friday, he would wait for six hours, waiting for his life to slowly drain away. Some people died of their wounds, but most people in that position on a cross died of asphyxiation. You see, the whole point was that there was no place of relief from pain. So you're either pushing up to take a breath in on your ankles, or you're hanging down on your wrists to take another breath. And so most that constant agony of hands or wrists and then ankles most ran out of energy. And so people died not being able to take a breath. And as Jesus walks ahead of the disciples, knowing that he's on the way to Jerusalem to encounter and experience all of that, somehow he also knows that the physical torture involved is not the worst bit. You see, tragically, he knew he had to drink the cup. And the cup was something no one else could hold and no one else could drink from. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But in a moment, um, in that moment, the crushing weight of his responsibility to not only physically die, but to drink the cup um, spills out as his disciples completely misunderstand what is going on. You see, they think all the talk about the death and crucifixion was just a picture, was like an image or a symbol for a victory that he was going to achieve over his enemies. They were so set on the idea that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, was going to come to free them from Roman oppression and from sort of the the Jewish leaders' uh, hypocrisy that they're totally ignorant of what Jesus is actually talking about when he describes his death and resurrection. And two of them, James and John, cannot contain their lust for power as they imagine what it's going to be like for Jesus to be lifted high as king over Israel. And they collude with their mother. They they chat with their mum. And their mum decides to approach Jesus with a request. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your rights and the other at your left in your kingdom. I hope you've caught that. This is their mum asking Jesus 
when you rule Israel from your throne, can my two boys sit on either side of you? It is an embarrassing mum moment. Uh, I love my mum dearly, but uh, she, was a, she was a health visitor. And that meant when I was in junior school, so sort of up to the age of year uh, up to year six, my mum was the the person who came in to do this sex education talk with the class. So do you know there was Nitty Nora or whatever you call her who checked your hair for nits? Did you call her Nitty Nora? Like some of you like, what are you talking about? What did you call the lady who did the nits? The knit nurse, the knit lady, anyone's mum, the knit nurse? Yeah. So, just, oh, okay, yes, okay. So my mum was more embarrassing than Nora because she'd come in and tell everyone about the facts of life and I'd just be cringing away on the inside. And this is an embarrassing mum moment. We don't actually know who instigated it. So we don't know whether the disciples go to the mum and ask her or whether she gets caught up in this huge expectation for Jesus to be king and suggest the idea to the two boys. But just the request itself opens up this whole sorry business of power. People play power games all the time. You see it, I think, most clearly in business uh, or where career advancement is prized. People become two-faced, don't they? in the workplace. People change their personality in order to get ahead. They align themselves to people uh, they think are going places. They behave one way to a boss and another way with their co-workers. People manipulate. People hurt, lie, conceal, betray in order to climb the ladder of influence, wealth and power. And when I look at that, what I see is a deeper thing at work. Behind the lust for power and wealth or for something, is they're missing something else from their life. People fight for power because they feel weak or because they feel insecure without it. That's why people lust for power, because they know there's something missing in their lives. And I think this actually reveals a heart longing for security. If I have this, then I'll feel safe. And a heart longing for identity. If I have that role, I'm worth something. You know, it's fascinating, as I prepared this week, um, as I said, I just spoke at a conference in Bedford, and uh, speaking alongside me was Terry Virgo, who started a whole family of churches, about 1,500 churches worldwide, and David Devonish, who currently leads our worldwide family of churches. And they're like my heroes, and both of them, I don't think, have ever heard me preach or speak before. And so you need to know that's like quite a loaded thing for me, going to speak there. And I guess they're the sort of people that I would want to impress the most. Because if I get their approval, then I'll really be something. And they're some of the lies that I've had to really fight this week as I've thought about the conference. That I don't have to fight for their approval or work hard to impress. Primarily, I'm at this conference to serve and use the grace gift that I've been given, not to use it as an opportunity to grow in their estimation of me. You know, it's amazing how the desire for power, for approval, for uh, improvement, for success, 
can sneak into some of the most godly things that we do. Look at what happens when the other disciples hear about what happened. Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They weren't angry because the brothers had asked. Rather, they were mad because they'd got in there first. That's what's going on here. So what does Jesus do? Well, he says this in verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus' curious answer I think, would have taken the disciples by surprise. You see, they are confident in the fact Jesus is going to be king. And they ask, can we sit alongside you and share your power? And Jesus says, you've got no idea. My future involves drinking a cup full of the wrath of God. My guess is they felt a little bit like, what are we talking about? A little bit ashamed. You see, there's a whole story behind what Jesus says regarding the cup of God's wrath that we need to understand. You see, the Old Testament prophets spoke darkly of a connection between God's wrath with the imagery of a cup. Jeremiah 25, 15 tells us thus, The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. Then Isaiah, the great prophet, in 51.17 says, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And in the New Testament, Revelation 14, the angel speaks, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also would drink the wine of God's wrath, poured, poured full strength into the cup, of his anger. You know, there's lots we could say about those verses, but each one talks about a cup that has been filled with wine. And the wine somehow is the anger, the holy anger or the wrath of God. And how do we know that that's the cup that Jesus is going to drink? Well, we know because there's a connection in Gethsemane as Jesus prays before he goes to the cross. In Matthew 26, my father, if it is possible, let this cup Pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup of God's wrath. Now it's fascinating because from the story, the disciples will drink from a cup too, but it's a cup of suffering. Matthew twenty twenty three continues, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But Jesus' cup of suffering is different from theirs because Jesus' suffering is under God's anger. Jesus drinks from the cup of God's wrath, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God for all sins of all types. Now, I'm really aware uh, when I preach this that our culture doesn't like these bits of the Bible. If God is anything, then surely God is a God of love. He surely is a good God that sprinkles love wherever he goes. And surely the God you believe in would never hurt anyone or call them to account. Surely speaking of the God of wrath is rather old school sort of street preaching fire and brimstone. Not the sort of God that we want to talk to our friends about. Well let me just clarify because I think that the view of God 
that says he's just a sprinkling love sort of God and not a God of wrath is a little bit detached from the reality of life. I would suggest to you this morning that you cannot have a God of love without him also being a God of wrath. Let me illustrate what I mean, and uh, I'm pushing things here. If you ask me, could I go and beat someone up? Like someone you don't like, and you come to me and say, Pastor, I know it's a little bit out of your job description, but would you just go and beat that guy up? I don't like them very much. I would, I'm pretty sure I would say no. <laughs> if you told me, actually, I, I don't want you just to beat him up. I want you to kill him with your bare hands. I can reassure you that I would give an even stronger no. I'm just not that sort of person. I'm not good in a fight. I'm a peacemaker. I don't like violence at all. However, if the story changed and you told me that someone was harming one of my kids. I've got three kids. You need to know that my pastor's hat would come off at that point. And pretty quickly, I would do whatever it took to save my kids from harm. And it's not that I've got any secret ninja skills that I can suddenly bust out that I've been saving for a moment like this. But rather, I just know there is something strong and powerful and angry that would leap out of my heart at the thought of protecting my children. And I guess if you're a parent here, you might know a little bit of what I'm talking about. What's going on? What gave birth to this peaceful pastor experiencing such anger and wrath in my heart? Well, it's simply this. Love did. Loved birth that sort of wrath. You see, I love these kids so much that I would do damage if someone tried to harm them. You see, love and wrath cannot be taken from one another. If you take one, you lose the other. If God is not a God of wrath, then there is nothing he loves enough to incite his anger. Does that make sense? If God is not a God of wrath, there is nothing he loves enough to incite his anger. And I know the illustration isn't perfect because I'm not perfect. But you can't make God into a God of love, sprinkly love, without seeing that that will mean there are also things that he hates. Romans 1 in the New Testament tells us there are some things that he hates. And the number one thing is that he hates sin. He hates it when we think created things are more important than him, the creator. He hates our selfishness and our deception and our stealing and our greed and our idolatry where we place things higher than God himself. He hates our sexual immorality where we discard the gift of sex and put it anywhere but in the covenant of marriage. He hates it when we go our own way. Romans 1 tells us he also hates it when we believe the lie over the truth of God. That means when we think we're smarter than God. When we elevate ourselves over God himself. And he hates it when we fail to acknowledge 
God himself. If you ever want to get a peek into the depravity of man, the darkness of the heart of mankind, listen to the skeptic blame God for every bad thing in the world and at the same time give no credit for anything good. Denying to, uh, the, the knowledge of God. Because he's a God of love, he hates all these things that take people away from himself. He hates the sin in this world that destroys people. And his holy anger is turned into wine, a sour wine which he will make people drink. All those who have ever sinned will be forced to drink the cup of God's punishment and wrath unless... They can find someone else to do it on their behalf. Someone who is sinless, who doesn't come under that judgment. Someone who is fully man so that they can represent every person that's ever lived. And someone who would die in their place, take the punishment on their behalf. And that is the cup that Jesus drinks on the cross. It's there at Golgotha, in this place of crucifixion, that the Saviour drains the the cup of God's burning anger down to the dregs. God, God pours out his wrath, full strength, undiluted onto his Son. And the way the Apostle Paul tries to get his head round this incredible act He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be put right before God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup of God's mercy to us. The cup we drink from might include suffering as it was for the disciples but not wrath we do not get wrath anymore now we get God we get the sweet satisfying reality of his eternal relationship in Jesus Christ through the spirit if we say to yes to him then we receive it as a gift if you come and acknowledge that you have wronged God and humbly accept the cup of grace that is extended to you then you receive the victory that is won by Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. It gets applied to you. And can you see the disciples eager to become rich and famous themselves are being schooled in the true meaning of position. Jesus is redefining greatness for them. He says, look at how the world or the pagans aspire for power, position and prestige. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus rams the lesson home with a quote from Isaiah 53, which provides this blueprint for the sort of kingship that Jesus is embodying. One that sees the king first and foremost as a servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is what someone pays for the freedom of a slave. So Jesus understood entirely as the king of the universe, he was to die on the cross as a payment that would set people free that were enslaved by sin and its punishment. And it's cheesy and corny, but Indiana Jones, he takes the cup once filled with the blood of Christ and saves his father. So Jesus' blood in the same way would pay the ransom and bring life to those under the curse of sin. So Jesus makes it clear, greatness in the world is shown by ruling, but in his kingdom it's shown by serving. The world thinks the great ones are those who orders or who order others around. But in the kingdom, the greatest are those that endure hard times and suffering without complaining. The higher up the ladder, the less menial the job supposedly meant to become. But in the kingdom, God celebrates those who do the unseen, small, unnoticed acts of love and service. The way up is down and the way to greatness is smallness. And I want to ask you to reflect on all of this this morning. As Good Friday approaches, I want you to reflect on the immensity of what Jesus faces in this passage. I want you to be aware of how he embodies the very things that he's calling us to live out together. Let's beware the pride and insecurity in our hearts that forces us to try and be great, to try and win approval, to try and gain acceptance. You know, if we get our security primarily from God's approval of us, we will be so free that we can limit ourselves. If you truly understand how acceptable you are because of Jesus, you're so free, you can actually limit yourself to do the things that others say you shouldn't be doing. The things that don't get the applause. The things that never receive a congratulations. The things that mean that you put others before your own needs. You know, I hope this passage makes you reflect On the fact that God in his grace has given all of you some incredible gifts. And those gifts are not to serve you primarily. They are to serve this church and the world that you live in. So please use your gifts to bless others. Not to make yourself feel more loved or powerful. Think if you don't serve in this church right now. You know it's our privilege to serve you. But at some point you do the jump into the family and you say, I'll stand alongside you and serve all those others that are going to come into this community. You know, the heroes today are those serving in kids' work, aren't they? You know, we, none of us will probably really notice who's out there, like giving themselves to our children. And I spoke to Vicky just before the service. She was so nervous because she's preaching on a very difficult passage to a load of children under the age of seven. And she's going to be gently leading them to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. And uh, she's now going to get the acclaim, because I've talked about her. And you should rightly thank her and her team. But we want to be a church, don't we, that serve each other, and serve hard, and serve with love. 
You should be encouraged if you're serving this morning in an unseen place. If no one thanks you for what you do, and if others are noticed and you are ignored. The US President Harry Truman once said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care about who gets the credit. 1 Peter puts it like this, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You come to God high because you're so sure of yourself in your own sin. But if you accept what Jesus does for you, you, you're brought low as you humble yourself and receive the gift of salvation. And in due time, you're lifted high. You're placed in heavenly places in Christ. You have a new identity, a new role in this life, and an eternity at the right hand of God. Play second fiddle to Jesus and he will will swiftly raise you up on his terms. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Do you want to stand with me? We're going to pray and then sing. Do you want to bow your heads? And uh, I'd appreciate that you just take a moment to contemplate the wonder the majesty of what we have just heard. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve and God is satisfied. You might want to take a moment to say thank you. You might want to take a moment to even say to God, I want to receive that gift that you have for me today. Perhaps you've never done that before. You've had a season away from God and you know you need to come back to him and receive his grace. And perhaps you are experiencing life as a servant right now and you need to be reminded that you're in a good place. That God, as you are humbled and lowered, will raise you up in due time. Holy Spirit, Please come and make these deep truths a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name.